Good morning, everybody. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much for uh, all of your texts, kind words about turning 50, had a birthday uh, July 13th, and uh, great time, but to be honest with you, kind of reflective. Um, one of the things that I'll share with you back when I was working um, and praying over whether or not God was calling me into ministry, one of the things that I kind of felt convicted about, and I can remember the quote that I um, kind of gave to myself was this, that um, as I sort of looked at my life, what I said was that I would have want to, when I turned 50, have my life more about giving to the Lord than giving to myself. And so I pray that in some small way you've been blessed through the ministry. Um, kind of a reflective time, but also just a joyous time. And uh, for those of you that you know do all of the old man jokes, that's, that's fine. Just remember, if you haven't turned 50 yet, um, your time is coming is maybe the right way to put that. So um, this morning we are in Hebrews chapter 9 and we're looking at the latter part of it. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn there. But as you are turning there, I want to take a moment and you'll notice that we have sort of a theme to the songs that we have sung. Uh, they all do and deal with the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And interestingly in that, I've had some conversations in the past, and some of you might have had conversations with individuals who don't know who Jesus is. And in a lot of them, one of the questions that people ask is, what is the big deal about the blood of Jesus? Why is that so important? And the next thing that they follow up with is, it seems like your God is quite harsh and rash to have a bloodshed in order for individuals to know him and to serve him. And so this morning, we're going to take a look, and the question that we're asking is essentially that. What is all this talk about the blood of Christ, and it sounds kind of morbid, doesn't it? To an outside observer, to someone who does not know about what Christ has done, when they hear the blood of Jesus, or when they hear individuals talk about Christ's shedding of his blood, they kind of look at it and say, I don't know. That's not something that I necessarily really want or choose to look to. Now, the other thing that I want to just throw out to you is how many of you have had the opportunity to watch The Passion of the Christ? If you have an opportunity to watch that movie, I encourage you to do so. However, I will let you know that it is a brutally honest depiction of Christ's crucifixion. And I've said before that when I watch it, I can't get through it without crying. Um, I can't imagine what my Savior was going through in order so I and we could have eternal life. But it's important to recognize because that is what was needed in order to appease the wrath of God. We must understand that. And so the first thing that I want to talk about and the first thing that I want to speak to before we dive into the scriptures is this. Oftentimes, the church is essentially wanting to kind of not speak to the blood of Jesus, or we don't talk about the depravity of our sin and need for a savior, because sometimes we feel that that picture or watching the passion of the Christ can be hard. It can be challenging. And so what we do is, is we speak to the good side, the resurrection of our savior, the fact that we've been saved from our sins, but we sort of gloss over what transpired. 
And so one of the things that I want to encourage us in, and I think it's so important for us to see, is this. That to fully appreciate the severity and seriousness of the gift of mercy and grace that is given to us through Christ, we must acknowledge the severity and the seriousness of our sin. We have to do that. We have to recognize our desperate need for a Savior. And the only ability for us to be saved was through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If we come forward to Christ thinking that we in and of ourselves can do anything to save us, if we do not speak to the severity of our sin, then Christ's sacrifice and his bloodshedding seems in vain and almost insane. Why would a God kill his own son so that you might be saved when there are other means to be saved? But if there is only one way to be saved, and as we've seen, if in the manner of how individuals were going about the futility or the futile attempt of obtaining cleansing for sin, as we've seen in the Old Testament. When we see Christ hanging on the cross, shedding his blood, having the nails pierce his hands and his feet, seeing him suffer, and when we hear him say the words, it is finished, it takes on a whole new meaning. When we know that there is no manner or there are no means for us to be saved apart from Jesus Christ, we begin to recognize why Christ went to the cross on our behalf. And so lovingly this morning, I want to start out with that because to be honest with you, we don't like talking about the severity of our sin. Internally within us, we have this pride that thinks we're good people. We do good things. If I do just enough good, certainly God will let me into heaven or Mecca or the afterlife or whatever it might be. But the challenging question that we have to ask ourselves is simply this. How good is good enough? And I've said it before, I certainly would hate to get to the pearly gates and stand before God with my resume and turn to him and say, hey God, here's the deal. I did 99 good things. Certainly that's enough. And have Peter, sort of in the analogies that we give, come forward and say, you know what, Trev? 99 was good enough, but with today's inflation rate, we had to raise the quota and it's 100. I'm sorry, but you cannot get in. So many people live with this idea of, is it enough? Is it good enough? And what we're going to discover is the severity of Christ's sacrifice made it complete and good enough and whole and finished so that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we no longer need to worry about, is it good enough? Because what we've discovered and seen in the book of Hebrews is we have the best of the best and we can forget all the rest in Jesus Christ. You've heard me constantly speak about the goat. I've talked about when we see the greatest of all times, we speak of Lionel Messi. He's the goat of football or soccer. 
We talk about this, and many people would say that Tom Brady is the goat of quarterbacking. Now, I would argue that it's Peyton Manning, but we hear that he's the goat. But unquestionably, unarguably, when we look at the book of Hebrews, we discover that indeed Jesus is the goat, the greatest of all times. We've been walking through this book and we've been discovering that individuals who were following Christ had begun to wonder if they should continue following him because they had fallen into challenge, difficulty, and persecution. And what they were doing was they were turning back. They were turning back to the Old Testament ways of living. They were thinking, you know, Jesus just isn't doing it for me because they had expectations that they thought weren't being met. And so people started turning back and thinking, maybe we need to go back to Moses. Maybe we need to go back to the prophets. Maybe we need to go back to the old testamental sacrificial system that was there, and perhaps that will work for us again. And bear in mind, as we look at this book, that what's happening is essentially two duality of systems occurring at the same time. What we see in this is that the book of Hebrews was written probably 30 years after Jesus' death. Jesus had come, he had lived, he had died, he had risen from the grave, triumphed over sin and death, demonstrated indeed the power of his resurrection, appeared to over 500 people, and people were beginning to say, indeed there is a new covenant in the blood of Christ. But then Christ ascends into heaven as we see in the scriptures in Acts 2, and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And from that point, Christ dies at about 30 or 30, 32 to 33 years of age. We have about 20 to 25, maybe 30 years where individuals are being persecuted for their faith. And imagine what's going on here. They've heard about Christ. They know that Christ has died. But over across the way, they're still seeing the temple in its full function. They're still seeing the sacrificial system happening that had been going on for thousands of years. They see the priests offering sacrifice. And they're wondering, hey, that's still going on over here. And I've believed in Jesus, and it isn't going well, so maybe we should go there. Brothers and sisters and friends in Christ, we've seen the futility of that effort. For those of you that were here last week, we saw about how the priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies. We saw the reverence that was given to God. But we also came to understand that as much as it looked good on the outside, as ceremonially it looked cleansing on the outside, the truth of the matter was, the author of Hebrews is brutally honest. He said there was no cleansing of the consciousness from within, meaning there was no ability to truly forgive us of our sins. It was futile. It was an attempt to scrub one clean on the outside and look good, but on the inside, everyone was still left guilty. Everyone would leave after having their sins atoned for recognizing that something wasn't right. We also talked about the fact that there was daily performing of rituals in the temple or in the tabernacle. But we also discovered that the day of atonement where the high priest would atone for people's sins happened but once a year. 
And so I've talked about this before, and I said, imagine if you came today, imagine if you came to this service convicted of your sin and saying, I want to be forgiven. I want to be right before God. I want to have my conscience cleared. And I turned to you and I said, that's wonderful, except for the problem was, was that was last week. You got to wait a whole nother year. Oh, P.S. by the way, don't tell anybody, but this whole thing doesn't work. Imagine that. And so one of the things that I want to do before we dive into the scripture is I want to take us back to the night before Jesus died and he's sitting with his disciples and he speaks to the fact as he lifts up the bread and the cup and he says, as he pulls up the cup, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we commune together, may we remember and reflect truly what God has done for us and the manner of how Christ died because of the severity of our sin. And when we cherish that, when we understand that, when we recognize that there is absolutely no means for us to get to God on our own, the sweetness of our Savior and His mercy and His grace becomes all the much more whole. Speak about the blood of Jesus. Speak about what Christ has done so that people understand and know the severity of their sin, but yet the joy and the mercy and grace of our salvation. You might have heard this before. I just want to speak to it before we dive into the scriptures. Christ's death. When Christ dies on the cross, we must remember and recognize that it, or he, delivers us from the penalty of sin. Whether we like it or not, we are guilty in our sin, period. None of us are righteous, not even one, as we read in the New Testament. But as Christian, Jesus delivers us from the power of sin. Today, in this day, we have been delivered from the power of sin. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is within us. And the power of sin is no longer over us. Now, do we still struggle in our sin? Yes. None of us are perfect. But we have been delivered over the power of sin in our lives. And the next thing that I want to encourage you in is, is that when Christ returns, when Christ returns to what all of us are watching and waiting for, he will establish his kingdom and we will be delivered from the presence of sin. There will be no more hurt, no more pain, no more anger, no more strife, no more loneliness, no more lust, no more greed, no more murder. All of those things, all of that will be eradicated. All because of what Christ has done. All of what he has done on the cross and all of what he promises to do when he returns again. And so this morning, as we're thinking about the blood of Christ, may that resonate with our hearts and with our souls. That being said, I encourage you again, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be looking particularly at verse 11. And you'll notice, right at the top, it says, the blood of Christ. Now remember and recognize that the author has been building his argument, how much more? 
how much more greater is Jesus than all of what we have seen? He is greater than the prophets. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than the Levitical sacrificial system. He is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And remember, we've learned that the uniqueness of Melchizedek is that he was both priest and king. Meaning that Jesus is able to priestly do what we need to be done. But he is also kingly, authoritatively able to do what needs to be done. We come to this part and we've just gone through this whole aspect about the futility of the system of the tabernacle. Last week we saw about entering into the tabernacle. We saw what the priests would do. We saw how the, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, a place where you and I would be excluded from. Please remember this and recognize that in Jesus' day, the people of God, if they were fortunate enough, could enter the outer court. We, for anyone who is not essentially Jewish by birth, would be excluded from the outer court. Those who perhaps were of the family of God might be lucky enough and fortunate enough to enter the outer court, but only, only the Levitical priests could enter the sacred place, the holy place. And only once a year could the high priest enter the holy of holies. God was present yet far. God was present yet distant. And imagine if you were standing outside of church today saying, I want my sins to be forgiven. And a wall stood before you and God. Yet when Christ dies, sheds his blood, and says, it is finished, we remember and recognize that at that moment there is a great earthquake and the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies is torn in two from top to bottom, demonstrating indeed that Christ's death is sufficient enough to distribute the grace and mercy of God to all whom will believe. That's what's going on here. That's what we're speaking to in this passage. And so let's pick up in chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all. Don't miss this. How? By his own blood having obtained eternal redemption the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean notice this argument how much more then will the blood of Christ who 
through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that has uh, died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who has made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law and all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these... For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Brothers and sisters and friends in Christ, this morning we've looked at this aspect of the blood of Christ, and to be honest with you, it is somewhat morbid to speak about Christ's blood until we understand the necessity of it, until we understand what Christ has done for us, and then we speak to the joy of Christ's blood realizing indeed that what he has done is bring us salvation so that we might have a clear conscience before God and be saved from his wrath to live with him in his kingdom. A couple of things that I want you to see as we travel through this passage, and the first thing that I want to encourage you in is this, particularly in verses 11 through 14, sort of what the author is stating, and sort of the central core behind it is this, that the blood of Christ redeems us once and for all from sin. And don't miss this second part, so that we might serve the living God. We read in this passage, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. Remember and recognize 
that during Jesus' death, the temple is fully in function. Now, the author of Hebrews is speaking to the tabernacle that was set up as God's people were in transitional time. But remember that as Christ hangs on the cross, the temple is fully functioning. Sacrifices are being made and the Levitical priests are moving forward. Atoning, and I put that in quotes, for the people of God. But everything that they are doing is futile. And it isn't working. They're cleansing the outside, but they're not cleansing the inside. Yet Jesus dies, and what does he do? He doesn't enter this man-made temple. He enters the true temple. We've seen earlier that the author of Hebrews says that the temple and the tabernacle are just a copy. They're a mimic. They're a shadow of the real thing. The true temple of God exists in God's kingdom of which only Jesus can enter. And he does so on our behalf. And notice how he enters. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. Remember and recognize that for centuries, the priests would offer sacrifice by the bloodletting of goats and calves, as was commanded by the scripture, as we see back in Leviticus under the law. But what does Jesus do? He goes in once and for all. One and done. And what does he do? Not only does he go in one and done, but what does he obtain? Eternal redemption. It is finished. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see and hear those words, we often talk, not wrongly so, about the fact that when Jesus says it is finished, he is finishing the atoning of our sins, the payment of our debt. But may we also remember and, and recognize that when Jesus says it is finished, he speaks to it is finished. No longer is there the futility of this system needed. It is done. It is over. It is complete. It is whole. We are forgiven. God's mercy and his grace may be fully given because it is done. One of the things that I uh, would like to just take a moment and speak about, we read these words, and don't, don't miss this. He talks about having obtained eternal Redemption. The word there, apolytrosin, is a transliteration from the Greek. Apolytrosin, it's a, or sorry, excuse me, it's, it's a, forgive me, hermanos, I'm getting ahead of myself, hermanos, having obtained. Now, why is this important? It's in the aorist tense. It's a participle in the middle voice. And what this means is that it supports and clarifies the adjective and the noun inonin, eternal, and litrotion, redemptive, uh, redemption, respectively. 
Why is this so important? The reason is, is because the fact that this word is in the aorist tense means that it is complete and it is whole. Some of you, you know, don't really love English, et cetera, et cetera. I wasn't a huge fan of my English teacher. But don't miss this. This is not something that is maybe did so, is doing so, is continuing to strive to do so. It's done. It's whole. It's complete. 100% no more need. And the reason that I want to put emphasis on that is when we recognize that Christ has obtained eternal redemption, we don't need to go anywhere else. Proof positive right there. We don't need to look to something else. We don't need to add something to Christ. We don't need to take away from Christ. We don't need to go back to the Old Testament system. We don't need to think that what Christ has done is incomplete. And so what does this mean for us, brothers and sisters in Christ? It means that when we go to God and we ask Him to forgive us of our sin, when we call Him Lord and we become part of His family, we are saved, period. And there is no longer a need for us to add to His salvation. Oh, what's my horoscope say today? Oh, well, I'll take a little bit of Jesus, but a whole lot of the New Age theology is out there. I, I, I trust in Jesus 50%, but just to be safe, I'm going to add in all of these other things. You can double down on Jesus. You can put all in on Him and know that time and time and time again, your number will be called. Period. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered to himself, unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that lead to death? If you read back to what we spoke about before last week, we recognize that everything that the Levitical priests did was an outward expression of cleansliness. But at the end of that part, the author says, you know something? With all of this, you could never clear the inner conscious of the soul. And yet right here he says, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that lead to death. Jesus is the one who does that. Now the other thing that I want to ask is this. So Jesus does that. He clears our conscience, right? Does the author stop there? He clears our consciousness. He brings us out of slavery to sin. He does so that we might be free. So that we might be whole in Christ. So that we might have our sins forgiven. And so that in that, what we can do is we can just forget Him and live our lives how we want, where we want, and where we want it. No, what does he do? He frees us so that we might serve him. And so lovingly, what I want to ask you today is this. How are you serving him? What are you doing to serve him? How has the blood of Christ redeemed you from God's wrath into his mercy and grace? So compelled you 
that your life is no longer your own, but your life is about exalting the glorious King who has offered you that gracious gift. And so I ask again, how are you serving Him? And lovingly I ask you, are you serving Him at all? The author doesn't say to cleanse us from the acts that lead to death so that we can have our independent lives apart from God. He cleanses us from the acts that lead to death so that we might serve our living king. So the first thing I want you to see in this is that the blood of Christ redeems us once and for all from sin. But don't miss that last part. So that, purpose clause, so that we might serve the living God. And then in verse 15, we transition and the author says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. To be honest with you, that verse there is an entirely, it's a, it's a whole sermon series. So I encourage you to take time walking through that verse, and I'll do what I can today to do it justice. The first thing that I want you to see, particularly in this, is, is that as a mediator of the new covenant, through Christ's death, we receive an eternal inheritance. Don't miss this. Christ is the mediator of this new covenant that is established. Interestingly enough, what we're going to see here in a moment is these legal terms that are going to keep popping up. And to speak to that, I want to encourage you in something. On a legal perspective, a mediator or a moderator is someone who comes in the middle between two opposing sides that cannot come to agreement. And so if you think through this, think about humanity saying, we want to be our own, we want to get to heaven, we want to be our own gods, and God over here in his righteousness saying, I am holy, I am just. You can have no part with me. And so what does Christ do? He comes in as the moderator or the mediator and says, I will bring these two together. I will be the one that joins these two together, not only in a salvific sense, but in a legal one as well. And how does he do so? He goes to the cross on our behalf as the moderation to bring about salvation for our souls. Interestingly enough, we continue on and it says that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to circle that word as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Please don't miss that because one of the things that we gloss over is the fact that we are dead in our sins and we are slaves to it. We cannot free ourselves from it on our own. The word ransom is apolytrosin. 
It's a noun, and it's a compound of apo and lutron, meaning to ransom in full, to make a full payment for a debt that cannot be paid. You can speak to the riddance, the eradication of the debt. And so one of the things that you need to remember and recognize is, is that Christ's death on the cross buys us back, please hear me on this, from the slave market of sin. He comes forward and we are in the slave market of sin and there is no means, there are no means for us to be free. And so Christ comes as the mediator, as the moderator, goes to the cross and he says, let me do this for you. Let me pay that debt. Let me buy you back. So that we might have eternal life. But also it speaks to an inheritance and that's the joy that we see. Christ doesn't just buy us back. Christ doesn't just buy us back to then set us free. He doesn't say, let me get you out of the slave market of sin, and then I want nothing to do with you. Get away from me. But what does he do? He buys us back from the slave market of sin once and for all. And then he says, P.S., by the way, I have something for you. And I want you to know about it. I've left you my will. tell you what my will is. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The author speaking back to the people of God who in their futile way were trying to essentially atone or pay for the sins that they had committed, of which we've discovered was impossible to do. And yet Jesus comes, he lives, and he dies, and he enters the greater place, the most holy place, the true tabernacle, the true temple, to redeem us from eternal damnation. He buys us back. He pays in full completely and wholly so that he can say indeed it is finished our sins are forgiven they are forgotten and the system that is so futile is now done with and then watch this we turn to verse 16 and this is what I want to see 16 through 22 the shedding of Christ's blood brings forgiveness and enacts the desires of his will don't miss this. The shedding of his blood brings forgiveness and enacts the desires of his will. Let's speak to this for a minute. The, the, the writer says, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even in the first covenant, It was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law and all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled 
with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And don't miss this part. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Another way to say that is, is in order to be forgiven, in order to have our sins forgiving according to the law that God has established, there must be the shedding of blood. few things that I want to speak about. Um, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to, verse 22, shedding of blood. I'm going to do my best to pronounce this in Greek. It's aimaitekasiasis. It's a noun. And at its core, it speaks to a shedding or pouring forth of blood in sacrifice. It's derived from aimea and a derivative of ekecheo, an effusion of blood, a pouring of blood, a spilling of blood. And what I love about this is this is the only time in the entirety of the New Testament that this word appears. We must have the shedding of Christ's blood in order to be forgiven. And for centuries, priests were shedding the blood of calves and goats unblemished in their eyes in order to try to atone for the sins of the people. But what we discover in Christ is as the true and only unblemished lamb, he comes forward. Are you washed in the blood, in the, don't miss this, soul cleansing, not outward cleaning. It would be if we were Levitical. Are you washed? Are you washed in the outward cleaning of the goat? So you can leave here with your conscience not clear, still guilty in the sins you've committed. Now, don't ask me to sing anymore. I got really nervous when I did that. Okay? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's exactly what's being spoken about right here. The shedding of blood. Now, the other thing that I want to speak to, and this is something that, that I love. There are days when I wonder, I, I, I love what I do. Um, I love being a pastor. Uh, although at times I wonder if I would have made a good attorney. I don't know. But I love the legal side of things. And don't miss this. Earlier it says, in the case of a will, okay, 
In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who has made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. Okay? So how many of you have ever um, had someone in your family or, or someone pass away and then they come forward and they, and they tell you, you know, hey, they, they left something to you in their will? I've had that happen a few times. I remember when I was younger, um, the first one for me was when Papa, uh, he was my maternal grandfather, had passed away, and my mom was the executor of that estate. And she came forward and she said, hey, I just want to let you know that you know, Papa left something for you in the will. And just think through this. You know, A, I, I loved Papa. Um, Papa and I would go out, and when I was younger, he had the Trans Am. He had a gold Trans Am, okay, Smokey and the Bandit, except for it was gold. I think I've told you this before, but um, he would let me get in there, and I was too small to reach the pedals, and we would go out and we would drive, and, and man, I thought I was the bee's knees, you know, sitting with my, my papa, right, and, and, and driving that car, and I remember one time, um, I won't use the words that he said, but all of a sudden he said, oh, you know, bleep, 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 shoves my head down under the dash, right? We had turned a corner and a police car was turning the other way, right? Okay. When Papa died, his will was enacted. And when I received the inheritance that was given to me, it wasn't the Trans Am, okay? It's all right. It brought back memories of what my Papa was. I want to show you something in a minute. We're going to talk legally, okay? So let's, let's just, I'm going to read this to you, and I want to show this to you, okay? Um, a deceased person with a will is known as a testator. That's the legal term, okay? Kelly and I, uh, what, maybe two years ago, we went and we kind of redid our will. Kind of a morbid thing, but we said, hey, you know, we need to make sure that we do this. And so essentially in that, we're the testators. We're the ones who are saying, you know, should we die, we're creating a will. We are the testators of it. And this is, after we die, what we want to happen. Okay? Some of you have probably done that. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you to go out and get a will. But in this aspect, the person with the will is the testator, Jesus. Now, when the testator dies... Okay? The executor, okay, God and the Holy Spirit is responsible for the initiating and carrying out of the probate process. These are legal terms. So, for example, Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to give my will. Uh, here it is. Now, as he's living, it can't be enacted. But once he dies, the will legally goes into effect. After the death of Christ, of what the author is speaking about, the executor comes forward and says, we're responsible to carry this out. We're responsible to carry out the will and the desire of whatever had been written in this will. And that is known as the probate process. The executor, God and the Holy Spirit, is usually a family member. Oftentimes what we do in our will, we have named an executor and it is a family member of our estate. Interestingly enough, now, okay, theologically, but it's just kind of interesting. 
that we speak about Jesus dying and yet the family member, God and the Holy Spirit are the executors of it. Somewhat of a reference to the triune nature of our God. And interestingly enough, the executor, God and the Holy Spirit, usually a family member, and the beneficiaries, okay? Then there are the beneficiaries, right? Hey, you're in the will. You're the beneficiary of whatever's written in there. And that would be those who trust in Christ, okay? Sometimes, or usually it's family members. It might be other individuals. They receive property from the testator's estate, this is what the testator had. I am the executor of it. You are the beneficiary of it. And I'm here to make sure that whatever they said to give to you is carried forth. What's unique here is that Jesus had come back from the dead and now participate as the executor of his own will. And what is that will? Don't miss this. Think about this for a minute. How many of you have ever had a, a, somebody's will given to you, right? You read it. How many of you have ever like, had somebody's will given to you and like, you're all excited because you know, there's a bunch of stuff and then the next thing you know, you're either not named in it or everything that you hope to get, you don't get? Anybody frustrated about that? Right? This is what I want to tell you. Jesus comes forward as the executor of his will, dies on the cross as the testator, enacts the will, comes forward, and he says, you're named in the will. You're named in the will. And the next thing you know, you're like, well, what do I get? What do I get out of the will? And what God says is, everything, all of what I have is yours. All of it. I hold nothing back. Come and be and received. My question is, are you named in the will? Are you named in his will? The manner of how we're named in the will of God is simply by this. Trusting and placing our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you're named in the will. By placing your faith and trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You become written into that will. And so my question is, why would you turn back to a system that is futile and unable to forgive you of your sin, to leave you with a guilty conscience, to clean you outwardly but not clean you inwardly, and not turn to Jesus Christ, knowing indeed that not only does he buy you from the slave market of sin and free you from the penalty of sin, but he gives you as the testator and executor of his estate the benefit of being in his kingdom of which he says, I give you all. We continue on. And we see this. 
It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. Again, he's speaking. He didn't go in, even though we see him go into the temple. And what does he do? The man-made temple. He becomes distraught and destroys it because it was being used in a manner that was not pleasing to God. It was being used for man's own benefit. But the true temple, the true sanctuary, is the one that exists in God's kingdom. Verse 24, for he did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Jesus walks in and he says, as the testator of my will, Father, it is finished. I am done. The work is over. May the people who I have come and died for receive forgiveness. And may they receive the internal inheritance that is promised to them as stated in my will. Verse 25, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. By the way, the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Don't ever forget what we've learned. Don't forget that year after year after year after year, the high priest only once a year could enter the, high, uh, the, the holy place, the holy of holies. And first he would have to offer blood for his own sins. And then only after offering blood for his own sins could he offer blood for the sins committed by the people. And after it was all done, everybody was happy, everybody was excited, but the reality was nothing had occurred. We were still dead in our sin. But now, but now, circle that, but now, right? He has appeared once and for all. Once and for all all to do away don't miss this that word there athe tason athe tason is a noun it means to put away legally annul nullify abrogate abolish get rid of done it's derived from the core word atheteo to cancel it is finished How does he do away with sin? By the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, 
So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time speaking to the second coming of Christ not to bear sin. Lovingly, what I want to tell you there is Christ comes again and we rejoice. There's not another chance but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. One of the things that I want you to see and one of the things that you need to recognize, we talk about the blood of Christ and sometimes we're embarrassed by it. Sometimes people say it sounds severe. Some people say, well, why would the bloodletting of a a person need to be done in order to bring about salvation? What I want to show you is simply this, that salvation has always been by blood. It has always been by blood. It was part of what God had said to Moses and it is part of what God has said to Christ. And when we see this, first and foremost, the blood must be innocent, unblemished, as we read in verse 14. It must be shed, as we read in verse 22, by the word, the shedding of blood, which I told you is the only time that that word appears in the entirety of the New Testament. But then also, don't forget this, as we see in verse 28, it must be applied. So every time back in the sacrificial system, when the Levitical priest would sacrifice the goat or the lamb, they would take the blood and they would mark the altar of sacrifice. It must be applied. And that's what Christ has done for you. And then, the final thing I want to show you is this. Just as a man is destined to die once, please don't miss this, and after that to face judgment, so too Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's a few things I want you to see in these two verses. First and foremost, it's this. Christ has died once and for all. Christ does not need to die again. There is no need for the continual re-crucification of Jesus in order for us to forgive our sins. So brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle in sin, do not re-crucify yourself over and over and over again, asking God to forgive you when he has done it once and for all. You are free. It is forgiven. It is forgotten. He casts our sins as far as the evil East is from the West, and you are His, you are a child of God, and you have received the internal inheritance of which Jesus says, my will for you is all. That's what you have. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not pervert the grace of God. Do not continue in your sins so that grace may increase, as Paul says, but do not let the enemy pull you into guilt, saying you are not good enough. You are not his. See how much you fall into your sin. How can you be a follower of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, in confidence, you can say, yes, I am a sinner who is saved by grace, and I am washed in the blood, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. And my garments are pure and white because I'm washed in his blood, not my own.
The other thing, too, that I want to speak to you is this. Notice the construction of this verse. Just as a man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. Please don't miss this. This is what I want to speak to on this. Every person has but a single life before eternal judgment. You have one life to live. Okay? Isn't that a, a uh, soap name? Okay. Don't think that direction. Right? One life to live. But truly, you have one life to live before eternal judgment. Please hear me. Right here, the construction of this verse. This repudiates reincarnation. It absolutely destroys any thought of reincarnation or any idea that there will be a second chance to believe after death. Since immediately after the reference to the fact of death comes the phrase, and after that comes judgment, with no hint of any intervening opportunity for change of status. That's coming out of the ESV study Bible. What does this mean? Lovingly, I tell you, you have one life to live. You don't get a second chance. And so what I tell you is this. Don't gamble. Don't gamble. Because God, by his mercy and grace, has provided the means for us to be wholly saved in Jesus Christ through the shedding of Christ's blood so that we might have eternal life and receive the eternal inheritance that is promised to us via Jesus' will. And so this morning we've talked about this idea of what is this blood of Christ all about? And it sounds kind of morbid. My prayer this morning as we see and we've learned and we've heard about the blood of Christ that we would cherish the blood of Jesus. That every time we come to communion we hear the words, this is the blood or the new covenant of my blood in this drink of it. That we would recognize indeed what Christ has done. May we remember and recognize that the blood of Christ redeems us once and for all from sin so that we might serve the living God. And lovingly, I ask you, are you serving him? How are you serving him? Are you serving him at all? Remember that Christ is a mediator of a new covenant. Through Christ's death, we receive an eternal inheritance. Brothers and sisters, have you received that eternal inheritance? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? The shedding of Christ's blood also brings forgiveness and enacts the desires of his will. May we recognize that the desire of Christ's will is for you to be part of his family and to receive all of his estate. And Christ's death removes us from the penalty of sin once and for all and brings salvation to those waiting for him. This is speaking to the second coming of Christ. This is speaking to the culmination of all that is there. And so lovingly, I want to ask you this. Are you waiting for our Savior? I want to leave you with this. This is sort of the, the final aspect, the take-home truth. The shedding of Christ's blood and his death on the cross enact his will. It essentially puts the legal aspect in to motion. And his will is this, to remove the penalty of our sin once and for all, to bring salvation to our souls, 
and to grant us an eternal inheritance in his kingdom. Lovingly, I leave you with this simple question. Are you in his will? Let's pray.